it in our rebellion against him and in need of a saviour. And in our passage we see Jesus who is faithful to the end but we also see one of his closest followers, the Apostle Peter, who ends in denial. Now, if you weren't here last week or if your memory is not real good and you were here last week, let me just remind you of some of the things that we read in chapter 14, particularly from verses 27 to 31. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So this is Peter just on this very same night that the events that we've just had read transpire. He has said, yeah, sure, all these other disciples, they're likely, they're soft. They'll deny you. No, not me. Not a chance. I would die before I would deny you, he says. It also, immediately after saying that, in verses 32 to 42, we saw that when Jesus took Peter and James and John aside and says, watch, keep watch while I pray. And on three occasions, all three of them, including Peter, who said he would die before ever letting Jesus down, fell asleep. So Peter's kind of already had something by way of a bit of a forewarning. You know what, Pete? You are capable of hell. You're not as big as some of your claims may be. So as we work our way through the passage, we're going to look at the slippery slope of denial. Jesus, who cannot deny himself. And we're going to wrap it up with keep watch and stand firm. So firstly, the slippery slope of denial, focusing on Peter. When Jesus was first arrested, it says that all of the disciples fled. Now we know that Peter didn't entirely abandon Jesus. And according to John chapter 18, verse 15, there was another disciple who followed from a distance as well. What Matthew tells us that Mark doesn't tell us is he tells us something about Peter's intention from following from a distance. He tells us that Peter was, was following from a distance, hoping to find out what the outcome of the trial of the Lord Jesus would be. Maybe after he's thought about all of the big, bold claims that he's made, he's thinking, I can't, I can't go back on my word. I've got to at least hang around. But at the same time, he keeps far enough in the distance that no one will kind of make the connection or, or to see that Peter even appears interested in Jesus. So there he is, warming by the fire. We'll come back to the trial before the Sanhedrin in a moment. But firstly, we're going to focus on Peter. Now, I've got no reason to believe that Peter didn't actually mean it when he said, I won't deny you. I'll die before I do that. He, I, I believe he was genuine when he said it. But it's so easy to make a claim when that claim is not under any pressure whatsoever. 
If nothing else, Peter's example shows us exactly how weak the fleshly nature is. But also, too, how easily the slippery slope of denial will drag you down. So if we look at Peter's first denial, which is up there on the screen, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Now, before looking at Peter's actual response, there's some significant things to note there. Firstly, it's not a religious leader, it's not a soldier. It is not someone who is a threat to Peter who puts forward this proposition to him. It's a simple, generalised statement that comes from a servant girl. Now put yourself back first century culture, a woman's testimony counted for nothing. And this was not only a woman, but a servant. And the second thing to note before looking at his response It's not even an incriminating statement that she poses to Peter. All she says is, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. Guess what? Thousands were with Jesus the Nazarene. We see it recorded throughout all of the gospel accounts. She doesn't say where it was or when it was. She simply states, at some point I have seen you with Jesus like lots and lots of other people. For all we know, given that it would have been a hot topic of conversation, this could have just been a bit of a conversation starter. Yet for Peter, who claimed that he would die before denying Jesus in any way, even to this minor little statement, responds with a complete and total denial. He says, I neither know In other words, saying, I don't know this Jesus. Not only do I not have a personal connection with him, he says, neither do I understand. He's saying, I don't even have a clue who this Jesus is, let alone have anything to do with him. I don't think Peter could have denied Jesus any more comprehensively. And you know what? I don't think Peter was really even at risk at this point in time. Now, his second denial begins when the servant begins to see him a little bit more clearly. She saw him and began to say to the bystanders, so there's more bringing to the attention of others, this man is one of them. So not only is she potentially by the firelight seeing him a little bit more clearly, she's starting to place him a little bit more as to where and how she's seen him. Saying, you are one of them, which may mean one of the twelve It may just mean one of the the larger crowd of regular followers who are around Jesus. But whatever she's saying, she's definitely saying, you're a follower of this Jesus. You are someone who is regularly seen with him. Now, if you were Peter, and you've had that close relationship with Jesus for three years, you reckon you're probably feeling pretty guilty over your first denial, saying, I don't even know him. Wouldn't have a clue who you're talking about. And particularly in light of what Jesus had said about him, you think, man, I'm not going to make that mistake again. But once again, 
plain and simple, Peter denies any connection to Jesus. Then with the attention of the bystanders, who also recognised Jesus. This is after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. So it's not just the servant girl, there are bystanders say, without doubt, you are one of them. But think about for a moment the privileges that Peter had by being one of them. Probably no other human being on this planet had as close access to the Lord Jesus Christ while he was on the world than Peter did. He was called by Jesus. He got to see and hear things that even some of the twelve didn't get to see. He was told in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Yet despite all of these blessings, not only does Peter deny Jesus the third time, but he does so in a very vulgar way. He began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Notice that. He can't even say Jesus' name. But it's not just the case of I don't know him. He invokes a curse upon himself which translates a word which is very similar to our English, to anathematize. It's like he's actually made an oath that says, as long as Yahweh lives, I swear I don't know this bloke. And then the rooster crows again, and Peter realises what Jesus had spoken. The same words that Peter had denied would ever take place. The same words that Peter had said, I'm going to die before that would happen. But Peter has plainly and forcibly denied Jesus three times. But look at verse 72, which often gets overlooked, just sort of played down, and he broke down and wept. One of the dangers of preaching on Peter's denial is to minimise it. It's so easy to look at Peter and and think about our own weaknesses and and confess, you know what? I know my own weaknesses. In the same setting, I could possibly do the same. So let's let's not go so so hard on Peter. And then we go, oh, but it's so beautiful. Look at the way Jesus restored him, how he didn't cast him away. And that is a beautiful thing. But never overlook the deep sorrow and repentance that came in between those two things. We should never think little of our sin. Yes, we should love the fact that he's gracious and willing to forgive, but we should never make little of our sin and our denial of him. The best time to protect yourself from temptation is before you're faced with it. Peter is one of the closest disciples to Jesus. His slippery slope of denial didn't begin with a threat from a powerful man. It began with a simple, generalised statement by one whom the first century would have called a weak and insignificant woman. And how quickly his bold statement of confidence 
in the same 24-hour period, went to an even bolder denial of Jesus. Never make light of your temptation. Never make light of your sin. And let Peter be a warning to us. As J.C. Ryle comments on this, on this account, a 19th century bishop in the UK, says, There is nothing little that concerns our souls. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little spark may kindle a great fire. A little leak may sink a great ship. A little provocation may bring out from our hearts great corruption and end in bringing our souls into great trouble. As Paul instructed Timothy, and rightly we should do the same, watch your life and doctrine closely. It's not just for Peter, for every single one of us, denial, rejection of Jesus will lead to misery. Holiness will always lead to happiness. Now, Jesus, who cannot deny himself, while Peter is flatly denying Jesus under minimal pressure, Jesus is before a very real threat. He is standing before authorities and authorities who have openly declared for a long time they want him dead. You don't have to go far in Mark's Gospel to see the intention to have him, have him removed and killed. Chapter 3 of a 16-chapter book is when it's first introduced that the leaders wanted Jesus dead. There's nothing vague about the agenda of this meeting. It says when the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But incidentally, they found none. The outcome was set. We want him dead. The purpose of the meeting was to find a means to substantiate the end, to bring about his death. It's interesting, though, for probably close to three years, they have wanted him dead. And up to this point in time, they still have not been able to find a single reason to be, have him receive the death sentence. Even now, at this time, they, they gathered together looking for testimony. It says they found none. Not, not they didn't find enough. They found none. You see the same when Jesus goes before Pilate. On three occasions, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. The closest they go on this occasion is thinking, hang on, didn't he say something about the temple? We, we heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony about this didn't agree. Now, firstly, Saying you're going to knock down a building if that's what Jesus said and it's not exactly what he said is not capital punishment worthy. Secondly, the Old Testament requires that you need to have two corroborating witnesses and they couldn't even get that. Not only that, even the vague claim that is recorded here is very different than what Jesus says. It's not recorded in Mark at all. We do have it in John's Gospel. What Jesus did say, he says to them... Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
Now notice the claims that they were having up here amongst the Sanhedrin. They said, Jesus said he will destroy. Did Jesus say he was going to destroy? Seems to be putting responsibility upon the Jewish leaders saying, you will destroy. He made no comments about one thing being done by human hands, another not by human hands. In fact, the entirety of this meeting, these people who are trying to uphold themselves as being good and godly, doing the right thing by God, is fraught by them constantly doing things that the law, not only the the Old Testament law, but also their own laws that they've added, speak against. They weren't supposed to have any form of trials held at night time. Here they were openly bearing false witness. A capital case required two daytime hearings on successive days. The only thing you could receive capital punishment for was for blasphemy and specifically for cursing the name of God. Then if you were guilty of cursing the name of God, you were supposed to be stoned and then hung on a tree. There was nothing godly about the actions of these Jewish leaders. In fact, you can see from the beginning when they said, we want him dead, what's the claims? How are we going to do it? And we see the high priest is starting to get frustrated with the way they're not getting anywhere towards their end goal. So he asked Jesus, what are you going to say? Hoping maybe Jesus will give him some bait to work with. But in fulfilment of Isaiah 53.7, where it spoke about when he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus didn't answer. But the high priest wasn't giving up there. Not only does he ask Jesus a question with two pointed particular areas of interest, Matthew tells us in chapter 26 that he asked Jesus these questions under an oath. Do you swear by the Lord God? So kind of Jesus is kind of pressed to answer the question. And the two pinpoints of this question are, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Two questions. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Because the the Son of the Blessed is the Son of God. Now, as we know, the title Jesus most frequently uses of himself is, is the Son of Man. Does that mean that he's made no statements to these effects so far? No. When he's dealing with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and she says, I know the Messiah is, is coming, and Jesus says, the one you're speaking to, I am he. He's been very clear to say, yes, I am that Christ. It's not been a secret. It's not something not found on Jesus' own lips. And even before these people, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, back in chapter 12, where he gave the parable of the tenants, he by nature illustrated himself being that son of God. Jesus not only answers their question, but he gives them more than they ask for. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He not only affirms that yes on both of those things, but let me give you a few extras. If 
you want to know more about who I am? I am the one that David calls Lord, who will sit at God's right hand, the one that the Psalm 110 verse 1 spoke of. And you know what? I am the Son of Man coming with the clouds that Daniel spoke of in chapter 7 verses 13 to 14. Which, which as he said those words, that would have immediately brought those scriptures to their mind. And I'll just bring it to our mind as well. Where he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed." So here as they are trying to put him on trial, they want him dead. They think this is going to be the end of Jesus forever. Jesus says, you know what? I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And guess what? I will be raised. I will be installed as king at the right hand of God the Father. And I will come with the clouds to be your judge. Now the Sanhedrin were probably quite happy to laugh that off thinking Jesus was off his rocker but they've got enough of what they wanted to achieve they're like that's it there is blasphemy you have said that you are the son of the blessed to claim to be the Christ wasn't blasphemy as such it wasn't that wasn't blasphemy in the name of the Lord itself they wouldn't have liked it but it wouldn't come under the banner of blasphemy but to say that you were the special and privileged son of God making yourself equal with God, that was blasphemy in their eyes. However, that's only blasphemy if it's indeed true. I mean, if it's not true, well, it's, whew, that's a very good edit to take out of the sermon recording. But the reality is the only blasphemers on that occasion were the leaders who refused to believe Jesus' word that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God, that he was the one who had been stored at the right hand of the Father and the one coming with the clouds. So we need to keep watch and stand firm. Remember back in chapter 13 when Jesus was preparing the disciples, answering questions about the future, he kept repeating phrases like, keep watch, stay alert, stay awake, be on your guard. And here with Peter we see one of the closest disciples when placed under pressure we see all of his weaknesses come to the surface. If the Apostle Peter denied Christ don't think for a moment that you and I are not capable of doing the same. Peter thought he'd be willing to die before he'd go down that path. Peter's actions caused me to think of what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 8. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of the Father and with the holy angels. Jesus wasn't announcing some form of one-strike policy. I mean, after all, Jesus, Peter has already done this on three occasions in a very short period of time. And Peter was restored. But it is a reminder Every single one of us, by our fleshly nature, have the capacity to do any particular evil. 
and we'd be foolish to think that we couldn't. You or I have not arrived. None of us are immune to sin. None of us are immune to weakness. When you think back to Paul's word to the Ephesians about the armour of God, beginning with us talking about standing firm, and then after he goes through it all, he says, then having done all, to stand firm. We've seen Peter's deep remorse and repentance and an unfaithfulness which will always lead to sorrow. But let's not forget, holiness will always lead to happiness. We should always examine ourselves in time of sorrow. How often is it that when you are going through hard times or you're going through a sorrowful time or you just don't feel right, have you actually taken stock to examine yourself? How is my walk with Jesus actually going? Is it possibly that I'm neglecting some of the most basic things that Jesus has given me for me to thrive in a relationship with him? But the good news is this wasn't Peter's final moment. When you look to the book of Acts, which we spent three years going through sections of Acts till we got through to the end, as the Holy Spirit came upon upon Peter, he spoke boldly. He received threats from people from all sorts of power and he says, I don't care, I cannot help but speak of this Jesus. And as Don regularly reminds us on Tuesday morning at our community group in Acts 1.8, when the Spirit comes upon you, he says, you will be my witnesses. He doesn't say, when the Spirit comes upon you, you will occasionally do tasks of witnessing. It is encompassed in the very nature of who you are. You are witnesses of Jesus Christ. And when there is no other name by which men can be saved, we cannot help but bear witness to the only saviour that God has provided for us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that we are weak. We know that we are a people who like to be liked. We know that we don't like to upset people we know and love. But Lord, we love you even more than that. We want to have boldness to speak clearly about who you are and what you've done with gentleness and respect but that we would never withhold the very counsel of God, the very good news of what Jesus Christ has done to set us free from the consequences of our sin against you. Lord, help us to remember that we are your witnesses Help us to remember that your very spirit does indeed dwell within us, who longs to, to speak of and point people to Christ. And we thank you for that wonderful promise in 2 Corinthians 5, that even as we are your ambassadors, your ambassadors, it is you who makes your appeal through us. And we pray that you might be pleased to present the good news of the gospel through weak vessels like, like all of us here in this room. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week will be our last sermon in Mark for this year before we do our Christmas series. Uh, We'll be doing the first 20 verses in Mark chapter 15. Um, So please read ahead.
us now as we sing. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me. 